desert storm, by blue sunshine, read by Sam Gabriel, based on the works of George Lucas. Chapter 5 Padawan Bilamba doesn't bat an eye when Ben returns with the Skywalkers in tow. I've secured your IDAT pass and authorization codes for the temple, Master Nasade, and you're being folded into the archives as we speak. Your clearance is unrestricted for a master of your rank, and the quartermaster has found your room assignment if you would like to visit the storeroom and pick up your living necessities, and your clothing allowance. She adds the last without so much as a twitch, and Ben still gives her a short look for the unsubtle judgment inherent in her suggestion. She has the grace to flush faintly and hand him the data pad. Lady Shmi, would you and Anakin join me for lunch, or prefer to rest a while before venturing the temple halls? Ben asks, and is rewarded with the flat look of a mother who has spent the better part of a week in a very small space. I'll escort you to one of the dining halls, Ben bows sheepishly. Do you need a guide, Master Nasade? Depper inquires, a little hopefully. I do not, Padawan Bilaba. Ben chuckles a little. I'm afraid I have to release you back to your regular duties. As a council Padawan on a session day, that likely included a lot of sitting and waiting at the council admittance desk and sorting paperwork. Yes, master. She bows shortly and stalks off, reminding him a little more of the woman she'll become. Ben and Shmi perform a small dance as she attempts to follow him in his shadow, and he keeps slowing it to allow her to walk beside him until she finally and deliberately steps hard on his heel and then walks at his elbow. Anakin in her arms. They call you Master, she says quietly. Her jaw set and her grip on Anakin a fierce one. It is a rank. Among the Jedi we... Proceed through a series of titles, given our age and experience and wisdom, Ben explains. Our youngest are Kreshlings, until they are old enough for formal classes and tutelage, and then they become initiates. Initiates chosen by a teacher within the order become Padawan learners, and those who are not enter the service corps, to receive technical training for various fields depending on their talents. We have a medical corps who work with our healers and develop medicines and treatments and provide aid for worlds in need of their skills, an agricultural corps, who work on food development, farming techniques, crop enhancement, and similar ventures, an educational corps, who provide traveling teachers and instructors galaxy-wide and often assist planets with assimilation into the Republic, and we have the exploratory corps, who make up many of the pilots and mechanics who assist the Jedi on our missions and help chart star systems and new hyperspace lanes. When a Padawan graduates, they become either a guardian, whose skills and talents lay in battle, a consular, whose skills lay in diplomacy and study of the Force, such as archivists or healers, or a sentinel, who follows a middle ground between the two, and is often far more subtle. After training a Padawan of their own, or by making great contributions to their field or to the study of the Force, a Jedi achieves the title of Master in recognition of their wisdom. Ben explains slowly, giving her a chance to process as he speaks. It is not a title granted to measure one's authority over others, but one's skills and knowledge which do them credit. She is quiet for a long moment, letting her eyes follow along the light-filled corridors and along the tall, sweeping ceilings. And how do they know you're a master? She asks aptly. 
They've never met you. They can feel it in the Force, Ben says. There is a certain sense about Jedi who have attained mastery, a certain feel to their presence and connection to the Force, that is either a sign that they are a master or are ready to be. In this place, Shmi, the title master means one who has mastered themselves. But the young ones must cut their hair and do as instructed by their teacher, and call them master above all others, Shmi says. Is that not servitude? Ben stops walking and turns to her. Oh, oh, Shmi, no. Well, yes, but... Ben stepped aside, pulling himself out of the center of the corridor. She watches him with her dark, sharp eyes. Shmi, when I was fourteen, I left the Jedi Order. I had found a cause that conflicted with what my master had decided, and so I parted ways with him. There was a conflict on another world, and I had chosen to stay and help them fight while he left. When the conflict seemed over, the Jedi returned once more to help mediate the two sides through their fragile peace. There is more to this story, and it is sad. But in the end, when the Jedi were to leave again, I was asked if I would return to the Jedi Order, and I chose to. It was my choice. The young healer said the Jedi are brought to the temple as younglings, often too small to remember their own worlds. Is it a choice when you know nothing else? Shmi counters. There are a thousand ways to be enslaved. Yes, it is not an easy choice, but it is still a choice, Ben assures her. Any Jedi could set their lightsaber down and choose to walk away, choose a different life, an easier life. Even the young, though their choices are more limited. Why? Ben sighs, gathering himself. It is often a point of contention that the Jedi take younglings into the crash. But it is also a misrepresentation to say we take them. Shmi, you have hemmed in Anakin's abilities his entire life. And part of it is that you are his mother. And part of it is that you also have power. Imagine if you could not. Shmi frowns, shifting uneasily. There are some races who are all born Force-sensitive, and so for them to raise their children to control their abilities is an easy task. But there are others, many others, for whom raising a Force-sensitive child is beyond their capability. When they are very young, those with the potential for great power can pull small things across the room and flood a house with their emotions. By the time they can walk and run and speak, they are often capable of breaking things without touching them, of lashing out with enough strength to knock a full-grown adult over. By the time a child is six or seven, they can tear a roof down with the strength of an unchecked temper if they're strong enough, or tear through the natural mental state of weaker-minded persons such as a fellow child, and do them serious harm. Ben knows Anakin was far, far stronger than that, and at ten, the council treated him very poorly for it. We take in children who are very young, so that they can be trained very young, so that they don't hurt others or themselves with their abilities. It may seem unkind, but it is necessary. 
Children who are not found early in life are so often referred, if necessary, to one of the service corps, so that they can be taught some control over their abilities, or they are referred a tutor from the education corps, who can visit their home and teach them and their families certain techniques for honing their capabilities and for curbing their accidents. Adults who are self-trained are generally referred to as rogue force users, and many of them are dangerous because their abilities can so easily be turned towards less civilized purposes. Shmee thinks that over, smoothing down Anakin's hair and eventually nods. So as to why a youngling's choices are more limited, it is because, in effect, the Jedi have become their parents, and once they are turned over to the temple, we are responsible for them until they reach their species majority. It is why children who do not become Padawans are instead assigned to a service corps, to be taught available trade skills and to continue to hone their abilities in ways that can be used in the day-to-day -day environment, encouraging plants to grow. Enhancing the reflexes of a pilot, improving the cognitive abilities of teachers and researchers, and other such trades. This way, when they reach their majority, they have a solid education and marketable skills with which they may choose to do however they please for the rest of their lives, be it to continue the work of the Corps, or to go out into the galaxy and try their luck. Why not return to their families? Shmi asks. Some do. Their families can claim them from the core if they wish to, Ben replies. And some families don't want them back. Ben's family hadn't even left him with their names when they gave him up. He hadn't even been six months old. And it isn't a decision their families make quickly. Jedi on search will make note of a youngling's force capabilities often while they are still infants, and discuss their potential futures with their parents, who will then have some years to decide. Very rarely is a child found and taken abruptly, and often the case is because the parents are aware of the Jedi practice and intended to hand them over because, because the parents are too willing to part with a child who can do things beyond their comprehension once the option is laid before them. But... Their families can't know them, once they've given them up, Shmi asks, sounding small and defeated. And Ben suddenly realizes why this interrogation has taken place. She knows, perhaps better than he can realize, that Anakin is powerful, and that the Jedi Temple may be the best place for him. Why else, after all, must she think Ben brought them here? Some masters would discourage it. Some would discourage it strongly, but it is not forbidden. Families may visit their child at the temple or pass along communications if they desire, but it is often a strain on both parties. Jedi live a very different life, Ben explains, and it makes the lessons on attachment difficult. Shmi gives him a questioning look and he asks her to question him on the codes another time. She agrees, and Ben sighs in relief, before finally managing to get them all to a dining hall. The storeroom is a quaint little name for the four levels in the south tower over which the quartermaster, a legion of maintenance droids, 
and a small workforce of Khorasati employees preside, containing the collective odds and ends possessions that have come to the temple as gifts, surplus, donations, or through the hands of Jedi who tend to acquire random detritus and possessions throughout the course of their missions. This includes everything from blankets to exotic art pieces to aquatic snapping slugs. Qui-Gon, Ben remembers less than fondly, had a knack for acquiring living things over the course of his apprenticeship. Typically things that bit, or chewed through Ben's possessions, or gave birth in Ben's bed, or which Ben turned out to be allergic to. Yoda had solemnly sworn that Qui-Gon had not known the fern he'd given Ben was poisonous, and that his master had not been trying to dispose of him, but Ben had never trusted anything Qui-Gon picked up ever again. Master Nazadeh, I'll tell you three more times if I have to. Padwan Bilaba did not requisition for an additional set of living quarters. Quartermaster Thi Thair Sim said nasally, the unusually skinny basilisk flapping all four hands. I can only do so many things at once. Are we not staying with you? Shmi inquired hesitantly, trying to keep hold of Anakin's hand as the little boy attempted to dart away to explore the maze of shelving stacks beyond them and all the treasures they held. I had thought you might prefer your privacy, Lady Shmi, Ben says softly, matching her quiet tones out of habit. It hasn't escaped my notice that I make you uncomfortable. You will not hurt me, she says with a certain finality that surprises him. For a moment he can see her real face, resolved and determined. I do not want to hide away because I am afraid. I do not want to be afraid, she tells him. And you are a good man for Anakin to follow. We should stay with you. Shmi pauses and affirms to herself that it is her choice to make. We will stay with you. If there is room for us. She looks at the quartermaster who flaps his lower hands again and shrugs his upper shoulders. He's assigned a master's suite. It's got a Padawan room in it, the quartermaster says. Ben, meanwhile, has turned away from Shmi and pressed a hand to his face, because she cannot know what she has said, cannot have cut deeper into the things that wound him most if she had tried. Anakin! Shmi clips shortly, and Ben turns, because Shmi does not shout slaves, do not raise their voices. But all the slave mothers knew how to make them carry. Sure enough, the youngling has finally wriggled free and darted off into the mezzanine of stuff. Ben jolts forward after the boy who shrieks when he realizes he's being chased and starts running faster, giggling the whole time, dancing around corners and scrambling over a cleaning droid and diving into a pile of decorative cushions before Ben manages to dig him out. Come out, come out, little mouse, Ben teases catching him by a kicking foot as he tries to burrow deeper into the pillows. No! Anakin whines, and then shrieks when Ben tickles his little foot and surrenders, letting Ben pull him from the pile, though he comes up clutching an egg-shaped beaded blue pillow and a sausage-shaped yellow one with tassels on the ends. Mine! Anakin declares, clutching them to his little chest. If you wish, Ben agrees scooping the boy up into the crook of an arm before carrying him back towards his mother, who had been lent a luggage droid, which clomps along in her wake as she followed their path. Ben swings Anakin around in an arc and then deposits him and his cushions in the cart on the droid's back. Is he allowed to take those? Shmi asks worriedly. Oh, yes. We're allowed to take anything from the storeroom to furnish our quarters, 
so long as we allow the quartermaster to review the inventory. Jed, I do not own anything personally, and so it will all be returned here when we no longer need it. And the inventory is so they know you do not steal things to keep, Shmi guesses. Oh, no, Ben chuckles. The inventory is because some clumsy Padawan once displaced the crown of the royal house of Alderaan in among the Jedi's collective possessions, where it apparently remained for five years before discovery. We pick up the oddest things. Shmi smiles, though her brow wrinkles in confusion. They are shortly retrieved by a quartermaster's assistant, one of the Coruscanti employees possessing a data pad and a learned sense of direction among the stacks. The green-skinned Twi'lek assists them in acquiring a box of soaps, lotion, and oils for their respective grooming needs, as well as towels and sheets, which were simply ordered from a textile printer, and then refused to leave the textile printers without haranguing Ben into acquiring new clothes after Shmi had banked off citing that she had recently purchased her own. Come on, Master. You can't keep going around the Great Jedi Temple looking like a raggedy backwater hermit. The Twi'lek grinned brightly. Pick a color. Brown, Ben said flatly. Pick a different color. The Twi'lek tries again, gesturing to the chromatic display on the printer. Shmi's hand flashes out, and she taps too before retracting her hands just as quickly. The Twi'lek eyes her sourly. You couldn't have gotten him a little further from brown and beige, he whines. Ben stares at the two shades, soft orange and low red, the two colors of the open circle fleet, Ben's war command, held together by him and Anakin. Those will do, Ben says quietly. The twilight grumbles, but accedes to the look on Ben's face, and waves a scanner arm in Ben's general vicinity to take his measurements. Shoes, too? Shoes and soft-sewed slippers, Ben replies, out of habit. It'll take a bit longer for the clothes. You want to look around for more comfort items? You all still need kitchenware? And you should really pick out a few blankets, the twilight who has not offered his name suggests, and Ben follows because Shmi does. They let Anakin pick their plates, bowls, and cups, and so end up with each one being a mismatched piece in various bright colors— but it makes the youngling happy. Ben peruses the storeroom's collection of tea kettles long enough that Shmi gets impatient and finally chooses a bulbous silver one engraved with flowers that remind him of Naboo. Regardless of how it all came to an end, Ben does have fond memories of Padme Nabri, and chief among them was her uncanny ability to always have a cup of a new exotic tea for him to try. Shmi, on the other hand, takes a long time running her fingers over blanket seams, each of them treated with an odd reverence, which puzzles Ben until he realizes that she can feel the echoes of those who held them before her. Younglings and elders and knights and masters. The comfort of the echoes of their force, held within the fabric, was one of the reasons blankets were not merely recycled new. To the Jedi, new things had a dullness to them, a lack of presence which could be disquieting. She chooses a large, thickly padded quilt of dark green, blue, and plum colors, and a lighter knit blanket of soft white and golden yellow. Ben finds himself drawn to one that is a thousand shades of gray between white and black, and nearly shimmers to look at. It is also, he notes contentedly, a sheer indulgence to the touch. The Twi'lek tries to convince them to peruse the art, 
but Ben begs off on that because they have yet to even see their new quarters, and instead they get led into furniture acquisition. Shmi immediately looks doubtful. They'll be delivered by the droids, the Twilight reassures her, catching the look. Anakin happily climbs on and over a variety of chairs, from massive hunks of coral to slippery, impossible curves of Felucian wicker, to squat, blocky constructions. Both Ben and Shmi find themselves particularly taken with a low, round table of pure, gleaming white quartz with the same vague design as a mushroom, and then spend an hour trying to find compatible seats, which in the end result in kneeling cushions and a small stool for Anakin, as nothing else was quite the right height. By the time they are even considering a couch or even a shelving unit, Anakin has clearly worn himself out of energy and is now cranky and tired and so they forego further exploration and hurry back to the quartermaster's office, collecting Ben's new parcel of clothes on the way. Finding their new set of quarters proves almost as difficult as finding their way through the stacks, and Anakin is crying quietly, because he's tired and he doesn't want to be tired. Ben apologizes profusely, but Shmi just sighs. Ben has to re-enter his new authorization codes four times before he gets them right, and they stumble into their quarters with relief. Ben's relief is short-lived, however, by the sudden and overwhelming appearance of plants. Oh, no, he mutters. Delicately tendrilled, pale gray, pink-spotted, bioluminescent vines creep out of a box frame around the window, over the walls, and across the ceiling, occasionally dotted with sprays of white, bulb-like flowers. In every open corner, a silver-barked, white-leafed tree grows at perfect angles, surrounded by smaller square pots bursting with red and purple ferns. It's beautiful, Shmi whispers. And Ben realizes that he has just utterly and completely lost any chance he had of removing them. <laughs>